Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. Please take your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. As we continue our series of messages on living outside the box, we're going to look at another Bible character this morning, and his name is not one that we often say. In fact, I think it's probably going to be new for many of you. His name is Mephibosheth, and we'll look at him in just a moment. Now, before you get comfortable, out of honor and respect to the reading of God's Word, let's go ahead and start right there this morning without any background. Let's stand together and let's read our passage of Scripture this morning in Romans chapter number 3. The passage of Scripture is somewhat familiar to all of us who have been saved any length of time. For uh, you have heard these verses in learning about your need for a Savior. So we will pick up in verse number 10. Romans chapter 3 verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible goes on to say, there's none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Isn't that prophetic? This was written almost 2,000 years ago, and today there is a falling away, and there are few people that actually seek after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In fact, I think today in the society in which we live, there's more people that use God's name in vain that would ever even have a fear of God. Drop down to verse 23. The writer simply says this, For all have sinned. All have come or fallen short of the glory of God. Father, I ask that you would take the words that have been prepared this morning, that it might challenge us. Father, there are many visitors here today. If there be one among us who does not have a personal relationship, that they would be drawn by the Holy Spirit to have a greater understanding and need of a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would take these words that will be spoken, that only words that you approve of will be spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're going to refer back to our text a little bit later in the message. But I desire to preach a message regarding a man that most of you have never heard of uh, outside of perhaps your annual Bible reading and and you really never even stopped to consider what the Bible was talking about uh, with this man. And his name is Mephibosheth. Can we try to say that together? Let's say that. I'll say one, two, three, and we're going to say Mephibosheth together. One, two, three. I would like to challenge someone to name their next son Mephibosheth. With all the other crazy names that that we're naming our kids, this would be a good one. Mephibosheth. And we can, um, and uh, and then we can uh, just, uh, we'll find some abbreviation for that, okay? Uh, The poor child would never know how to spell his name, but Mephibosheth is his name. 
He is a remarkable man. He lived uh, uh, during the period in time under the reign of King David. So allow me just to give you some background information as we look at this man. But, but in, the, in this time period of history, when King David was uh, reigning uh, over the nation of Israel, he had reached like an apex of his career. God had lifted him up from shepherding the, the sheep, and he had made him a shepherd of an entire nation. He's at the height of his success as a ruler. And it was during this peaceful interlude that David developed a desire to build a temple for God's name. Uh, He wanted a permanent, majestic structure to house specifically what was referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. God responded uh, by telling David, sorry David, it's not going to be your place To build such a temple. And even though David couldn't make a house for the Lord, the Lord did say to David that he will make you a house, and it would not be a physical house, but it's going to be a spiritual one. The Lord made a covenant, a a promise, a a binding agreement with David, a a solemn, immutable promise uh, that is still being fulfilled even to this day. Uh, This Davidic covenant, as as it's called, is fully realized uh, in the new covenant that was ratified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may I just say, Jesus is still building a spiritual house. You're part of that. Uh, So this morning's message goes all the way back to that line, all the way back to King David in this promise. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 9, which is where uh, the, the meat of our story comes from, David, he's reached this pinnacle of success. He's conquered everything that there is to conquer. He's, he has wealth and riches beyond his wildest dreams. He's set up a, a government that is just full of rich, capable leaders. Israel was, if I could say it this way, was running like a well-oiled machine and prospering on every hand. David has ruled so well, and he has little to do now. Uh, He was actually restless. He was bored. And it's in his restlessness that David's thoughts returned to his friend Jonathan. If you remember, several years ago I preached a series of messages about David, and and, uh, we spent two or three weeks talking about his friendship with Jonathan. They were kindred spirits. They loved each other. They were best buddies. They were like some of our our, our young adult guys here that they always hang out together. You see one, you see five. Um, And uh, they're they're just like kindred spirits. This this was David and Jonathan. And and Jonathan and David, they made a, if you will, a covenant. They made a promise of friendship. And they renewed it several times in, in 2 Samuel. And Jonathan, he had died years before in battle. And it only stands to reason then after these long years after Jonathan's death that David's thoughts go back to his friend. And it was reminiscing. Just... Oh, you know what? I I remember that covenant, that promise I made. So today's message, uh, we're going to learn how the King David, he found a a son of Jonathan. And his name, as you might guess, is Mephibosheth. And um, and he, he, he changed his life. David's mercy for Mephibosheth is a beautiful allegory of God's mercy for believers today. There is a parallel of what happened with David and Mephibosheth and what happens with Christ in you. 
It's uncanny. And we're going to look at that this morning. I would like to point out six parallels in our time together from, uh, from David's mercy for Mephibosheth uh, that illustrate God's mercy for us today. Here's parallel number one. We see as David sought to honor Jonathan, so Jesus Christ seeks to honor his father. So David, he looked for someone um, uh, to, so that he could honor that friendship that he had with Jonathan. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, he seeks to honor his father. Here the Bible says that David sought to honor Jonathan. As David sat on his throne inside his beautiful cedar palace, uh, he asked one of his servants in 2 Samuel 8 and verse 9, is there yet any that's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Remember that David and Jonathan, they had been the closest of friends. And David met Jonathan just after he had killed the giant Goliath. And all of you have heard that story. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Jonathan and his brothers, they stood by their father on the bloody heights of Mount Gilboa. And, and there this heroic warrior and faithful friend, he gave his life defending his father, King Saul. And when David heard the news of Jonathan's death, he wrote a funeral melody called the Song of the Bow. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1. In it, he speaks of this love for Jonathan and the loss that he had. Listen to some of the words that David wrote about his friend Jonathan. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Oh, Jonathan, that? thou wast slain in thine high places. I'm distressed for thee. My brother Jonathan, very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women others. We were so close. We knew everything. We knew everyone, uh, the secret about each other. We were so close that it even surpassed that of a husband and wife, how close we were. We were best buds. I'm, oh, I'm lamenting that I've lost my friend. They had been very, very close. They had been mighty warriors in battle. And their love for God and country was evident. And as David now was growing older, the memory of Jonathan became even more precious. Do you remember the name Philistines? The Philistines were the arch enemies of Israel. And between the Philistines and the years of political unrest inside Israel and, and King Saul's family and Jonathan's family, uh, by now at this time in, in, in David's reign as the king, it had, they had all been wiped out. The landscape had changed. It was so different. David wasn't even sure that there was even a nephew of his cousin left, much less a son. But the Bible says, yet, for Jonathan's sake, to honor his friend Jonathan, David wanted to show mercy to any remaining relative that he could find. And the king's kindness wouldn't remain uh, 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 just, just for King Saul, but it was for his son, Jonathan. He loved Jonathan, and I'm going to search the whole land to see if there's anyone left uh, for Jonathan's sake. And in those days when one dynasty was toppled by another, uh, the former king's family was usually executed. Um, if you study history at all, you would know that in almost every country where there's a monarchy and one monarchy passes to another, that everyone in the preceding monarchy is wiped out. David's covenant with Jonathan and his decision to act on it was revolutionary. This was abnormal what he was about to do. May I say to you that Jesus also seeks to honor his father? Jesus Christ, the man who walked this earth some 2,000 years ago, uh, 
He still seeks to honor his father. And if we were to take a poll this morning, how would you answer this question? Why did Jesus Christ come into this world and die on the cross? And I'll bet most of you say he came to save sinners. Wasn't that what most of us thought of when I asked that question? In fact, the Bible even says something to that, to that degree. It says, for the Son of Man came not to seek and to save that which was, which was, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But I submit to you there was a higher purpose. Just as David wanted to save someone from Saul's family for Jonathan's sake, Jesus, he saves us, not for our sakes, but for the Father's sake. Aren't you thankful this morning for that? If you know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, could you say amen? amen? Do you know that Jesus came to save us, not for our sakes, but to honor God the Father in heaven? Ultimately, he came into this world. He died on the cross to glorify his Father. He said these words. He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said it in his high priestly prayer. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. After that triumphal entry, hours before his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion, in John 12, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus came, yes, to save us. But his purpose was to glorify his own Father in heaven. We see salvation from our perspective, and our thoughts are man-centered and self-centered. May I just say, salvation is not man-centered, but it is God-centered. And, and sometimes we, we view salvation as a fire insurance policy like we view life insurance or car insurance or fire insurance for our house. May I just say, salvation is God-centered. It's all about how much God loves us. A commentator has written this. The purpose of Jesus' death was to glorify the Father, to be willing as the Son of God to suffer the loss of so much glory himself in order to repair the injury done to God's glory by our sin, showing how infinitely valuable the glory of God is. To be sure, the death of Christ also shows God's love for us, but we are not the center. David he wanted to bless some member of Saul's household, as the Bible says, for Jonathan's sake. And in a much greater, grander way, the mercy that we receive from Jesus Christ is not because we're worthy, not because we are deserving, but because Jesus wants to bring honor and glory to God the Father. There's a parallel number two in the story of David and Mephibosheth. The second parallel is this, as Mephibosheth lived in exile, so we are exiled from God by our sin. As Mephibosheth, as he lived in exile, we must understand that he expected death. Mephibosheth, if he were to be found, he expected to die. And so we are exiled from God by something called sin. There's not a one among us who has lived a perfect life. There's not a one among us who is without sin. 
And because our sin, we are separated or exiled from God. Mephibosheth, he lived in exile. When David explained to his servants how he wanted to bless Saul's descendants, they must have spread the word. And pretty soon there was a man named Ziba who was formerly a servant of the house of Saul. He came forward and now he's a little bit older and he had some information. He was led before King David in the palace. And again, David asked, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God unto him? Ziba responded this. He said, Jonathan hath yet a son, which his feet uh, uh, which is lame on his feet. Notice two important ways Mephibosheth is described. He is the son of David, and he also is crippled. Um, chapter 4 tells us that Mephibosheth's nurse, when Mephibosheth was a baby, dropped him. And he was injured irreparably and for his whole life. He had been crippled as he walked around. And so rather than living in royal luxury, Mephibosheth's life had been very hard. And when King David, he said, where is he? Ziba responded, Behold, he's in the house of Makar, the son of Amenio, and Lodabar. Now, Lodabar is an interesting name for a place. Lo in Hebrew means no. And Debar is from a root word meaning pasture. Therefore, the name Lodabar simply means this. It literally means no pasture. Think about that. So much is wrapped up in a name. Mephibosheth had spent his formative years hiding in a dry barren, lifeless place. We don't know how old he was, but, but, but that he was a grown man because verse number 12 says that he even had a young same who's not, whose name was Micah. And from age 5 to early adulthood, this grandson of the king had lived a life of exile in a place of no pasture, no home, no belonging. Oh, don't miss. You say, Pastor Armstrong, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. We were exiled from God by our sin. We have no pasture. We have no home apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. The parallel is unmistakable. As Mephibosheth was the son of the king, Adam, our forefather, was a son of God, and we were all created in his image. And Adam, as the head and representative uh, uh, of the human race, once had a face-to-face fellowship with God. And Adam had dominion to rule and reign as the son of the king. And as Mephibosheth was crippled by a fall, we were crippled by the fall. And we've been crippled ever since, almost 6,000 years. And although Adam had face-to-face fellowship with God, he chose to break God's law, and he fell into sin. And we we find this act in Genesis chapter 3 called the fall, or the fall into sin. And because of Adam's rebellion, he received the curse of sin. He became a sinner. He then perpetuated that sin to the entire human race, which has transformed from person to person to person for generations upon generations. Romans 5 and verse 12 simply says this, Wherefore, by one one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death has passed upon all of you, for that all have sin. Here's the, here's the parallel that I hope that you find. Mephibosheth was physically crippled, but we are spiritually crippled. 
were unable to come to God on our own. Mephibosheth was unable to go to King David on his own because of his debilitating, crippled life that he was living. We are unable to get to God alone because of our spiritual crippling sin nature. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Mephibosheth was forced to live a life of a political exile uh, from Israel. May I just say we're spiritual exiles from God. We were separated from him and we have no spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. Here's parallel number three very quickly this morning. As David sought out Mephibosheth, I love this. So Jesus Christ sought us out. As David sought out Mephibosheth, the Bible teaches us, so Jesus Christ sought us. David, he sought Mephibosheth. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 9, Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machar, the son of Emilio, from Lodabar. David gave the command, Bring Mephibosheth from that barren place to the palace. Notice that it was the king who initiated the meeting. Mephibosheth didn't limp up the palace doors and he begged for an audience. David called for him and the king sought him out. May I just tell you something that's a glorious truth from the word of God? Christ sought us. Christ seeks you. And if you're here this morning and you're without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he's still seeking you. The greatest parallel here is that we did not go looking for Christ. Rather, he came looking for us. And he's still looking for those who are lost. God is the great lover. He loved us and he drew us to him. And of his covenant people, the prophet Jeremiah said, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath, draw, except, hath sent me to draw him. And I will raise him up the last day. He said in John chapter 12, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. The Apostle John later wrote this, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Perhaps John summed it up uh, most clearly in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. He said this, we love him not because of anything that we did, because he first loved us. How great is the grace of God. We were lost, dead, barren, lifeless, crippled. We were unrighteous sinners who gave little thought of God and no desire for God. We wanted to go on our own way. Many people are still doing their own will. But because of the amazing love and unspeakable grace of God, he took that initiative. He sought us out. He called us by name. He called you and asked you to come to the palace. Think about that. One of my favorite hymns is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In one stanza it says this, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. When I was a teenager, the Lord sought me out. He called me by my name. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the unmistakable drawing of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I know Christ sought me out. He called to me. He even gave me faith to respond and say, yes, Lord, I believe. How many of you have that testimony this morning? He sought you out. You remember that moment of salvation when you gave your life to Christ. 
Oh, parallel number four from this story of a man named Mephibosheth is as Mephibosheth recognized his unworthiness before David, so we recognize our depravity before Jesus Christ. I read you a verse about Mephibosheth standing in the presence of the king. He was unworthy to stand before the king. We all must recognize our sin-depraved nature. The Bible says that Mephibosheth was entered into the presence of King David, a crippled man. And the Bible says he bowed before the king. I wonder what Mephibosheth thought when he received that royal summons to appear before King David. Oh, no. I've been hiding my whole life. This is it. The gig is up. He finally found me. I'm toast. I have to believe that he trembled as the palace guards led him before the king at the royal palace. In verse number 6, what Mephibosheth did is that he fell on his face and the Bible says he did reverence. He dropped his crutch. He bowed before the king and, and King David called his name. You know what he said? His first words to Mephibosheth, fear not, don't be afraid. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Let me paraphrase in 2021 language what David was saying. Mephibosheth, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to be afraid. Your father, Jonathan, was my best friend. And I promised him, I would provide for you, and I'll give you everything that's rightfully yours, plus you know what, why don't you just come and live with me? I eat pretty good here. You know, I have the best cooks. I have the best of everything. I want you to sit at my table. You know what, Mephibosheth, I just want you to become like one of my own sons. That's David's response to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, he can't believe his ears. He's dumbfounded. He expected prison at best and execution at worst. Now he's told that he'll become a son of the king and he'll live in the palace. Unbelievable. That's impossible. That doesn't happen and it hasn't happened before this in the word of God. The Bible says he bowed himself again and he said to the king, what is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon him as a dead dog as I am? This wasn't some type of false humility, but a genuine sentiment. He was crippled as a child. All of his life, he had lived in barrenness. He had been put down. He had been trampled on his whole life. He had been made fun of his whole life. He was a nobody. He said, I'm a dead dog. He knew it and admitted it. David's kindness to him was something that was overwhelming. But I want you to notice that we must bow before Jesus. Sometimes we're so full of pride, we're haughty in spirit. The thought of bowing down in a position of humility, no way. Like Mephibosheth, we were saved and we bowed before the king and we saw ourselves as we really were, sinners that had been alienated from God. Like Mephibosheth, there had to have been a time that we admitted that we were like a dead dog in our sin. Then the Bible teaches a doctrine we call the total hereditary depravity. It means that we are sinful uh, both by nature and by choice. It is hereditary in the sense that we were born with a sin nature that, we passed, that was passed down from our 
parents who received it from their parents, and we can trace that all the way back to Adam and Eve. But it is also total depravity in the sense that this depravity invades every part of our being. Everything about us is sinful. Romans 3 was our text. It's the biblical chapter that says the most about our depravity. We read this as our text in this passage uh, is, is highlighted there in, in your notes. The Bible says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that naturally seek after God. And one of the most convicting verses is simply this. For all have sinned. For Brent has sinned. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you, we're going to say for, you're going to put your name in there, has sinned. There's not a one of us that's not a sinner. But sometimes, here's our attitude. I'm not as bad as. And because we have that attitude, I'm not as bad as, we actually are full of pride. We're all sinners. For Brent has sinned. Let's say it together, only you put your name in here. For Brent has sinned. You're a sinner. You're depraved. And everyone who has ever truly been saved has had to come to the point of our own depravity. If you were saved as an adult, you fully understand this. A child, not so much as, as we're trying to shield them from the ravages of sin. Sometimes we have to admit, like Mephibosheth, I'm a dead dog in my sin. I'm just so thankful that the Lord looks down, and when we acknowledge that, he lifts us up. You know what he says in Psalm 3, verse 3? But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. We sing that. Our choir sings that. My glory and the lifter up of my head. Ephesians 2 says that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and even though we were by nature children of wrath, um, oh, that, that's us. But I want you to listen to Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even though we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. May I just tell you, Mephibosheth was a crippled man. Some of you are sleeping. I'm sorry, I'm dry. Elbow the person beside you. It's not hot in here. Just somebody stayed up last night and played video games really late. Okay. Mephibosheth, he was a crippled man. We were crippled in our sin. David looked down with grace and mercy and said, Mephibosheth, I want you to come and live in my palace. Jesus Christ died for us and God the Father says, listen, I want you to come and live in my palace called heaven. Amen. Parallel number five. As David gave Mephibosheth his father's inheritance, so Jesus Christ gives us the inheritance of our heavenly Father. Oh, it's a mistake not to believe in Christ. And if you're here today and eh, you're here because you have an invitation of a friend, you're here checking us out, you're here, you've been coming to church for a long time and you have no relationship with Christ, may I just tell you, on this parallel number five, please listen. 
For you to live with your pride. For you to live in your depravity a day longer. For you to decide, I'm going to live my life my way. It's foolishness because of what we're about to talk about. Mephibosheth received his father's estate. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel, David promised, I will restore thee all the land of thy Saul, uh, of Saul thy father. In verses 9 and 10, David turned to Ziba, the servant, and said, I've given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, and that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Everything that was lost when Saul's dynasty ended was restored to Mephibosheth. This is the first time this has happened in Scripture. This is amazing. Oh, don't miss this. We don't probably care about Mephibosheth, but you got to care about this next one. We have received our Heavenly Father's inheritance. You know what? Every day you're like this. First thing you do, you pull up your phone, you go to your favorite app, you go to your computer or your laptop. And you do this, you pull up your banking account and you check on your 401k and you check to see how much is in your savings and you're always worried about those materialistic things. May I just tell you, listen to me, none of this world is going to compare to the inheritance that awaits us in heaven. When we were saved, we were not only forgiven, we were given an inheritance by God Almighty. The Bible says in Romans 8, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. Galatians 3 says, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Titus chapter 3 says this, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're not going to receive an inheritance from God. We have already received it. It awaits you. We're now just waiting to possess it. Waiting on that opportunity to go to heaven and receive what has been given to us. Finally, parallel number six is my time is slipping away. In this story of Mephibosheth and David, as Mephibosheth sat at David's table like a son so we will sit at God's table as his sons and daughters. Wow, that's going to be awesome. I hope that you're looking forward to that. The Bible says this, Mephibosheth sat at David's table. Now, I've already established this fact. He is already the wealthiest person in the entire world at that time was King David. We know his son Solomon comes after him, which would be the wealthiest person. But uh, King David at that time, he's at the apex. He has everything that the world has to offer. Mephibosheth sat at the king's table. The Bible even says, thou shalt eat of my bread. In verse number 10, he, he instructed Ziba to work for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's land that thy uh, master's son may have food to eat. In verse number 13, the Bible says this. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, and he was still lame on both his feet. His crippled nature didn't prevent him. Do you know what? Our sin-depraved nature, the worst thing that you've ever done in life, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it will not prevent you from sitting at the king's table. I wonder what's keeping you 
from a relationship with Christ. Four times in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're told that Mephibosheth would eat at David's table. The sense of that statement is that he would be adopted into David's family. He would be David's son and David would be his father. Um, Charles Swindoll, he does a masterful job in describing this scene around the royal table and what it must have looked like. I, I can't approve upon it, so please bear with me as I read what he has written. Picture what life would be like in the years to come at the supper table with David. The meal is fixed and the dinner bell rings and along come the members of the family and their guests. Amnon, clever and witty, comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the guests, muscular, masculine, attractive, his skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom. Talk about handsome. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there's not a blemish on him. Then there's Tamar, beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later on, one could add Solomon as well. Uh, he's been in the study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. But then they hear this clump, 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 clump. And here comes Mephibosheth, hobbling along. He smiles and he humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Oh, what a scene. Think about that. Once Mephibosheth slid underneath the table, he didn't look any different than the other sons. May I give you a promise this morning that I hope encourages you? We will sit at God's table. We will sit at God's table. And here's what's interesting. There'll be no priorities then of who's important and who's not important. Because we will all be God's sons and God's daughters at God's table. There'll not be a, a first and a second. We will all be there at the table. Even though we limp along, clump, 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 fallen in our sinful flesh, the Bible promises a place at God's table. And though we may despise it, this sinful limp has a purpose and it reminds us of the grace of God. It reminds us that we are absolutely unworthy and that we are His only by His unmerited favor. And when we sit down with Him, may I just tell you, His grace covers our sin and we can have sweet fellowship with those around the table. First John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's coming a day when this life is over and we're going to meet Jesus face to face. That which is crippled is going to be made straight in his presence. Then we're going to sit down at that feast forever. And we're going to sit down with our redeemed brothers and sisters at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And do you know what? Maybe one of us will sit across the table from Mephibosheth. Won't that be interesting? Maybe those who didn't sleep today will remember this story. Hopefully those who are sleeping will be there. May I just say, there's coming a day when we're going to sit at a feast as Christians, as believers... And there's going to be a grace covering. And no one's sin is going to be called up. I'm so thankful for that. In that great day that lasts forever, 
we're going to truly know the meaning of mercy. And make no mistake about it, we're going to praise the name of God forever. There are hundreds and hundreds of people here today. Thank you so much for being here. I did not come to tickle your ears and to somehow help you leave here and, and, and come, uh, leave here no different than you came in. There's really two purposes of this message. If you're an unbeliever, you need Christ. You're depraved in your sin. It cripples you. You are not seeking Christ. He's seeking you. You need a relationship with Christ. He died for you. He wants you to be able to slide underneath the table at the great feast that's going to be in heaven one day. But if you do not because of pride and foolishness and comparison and works because I've done this and I've done that, if that's how you think you're going to get to heaven, you're going to be so sadly mistaken when you spend all of eternity in another destination that's the exact opposite of heaven. So the first purpose of this message is if you're here today without Christ, you have an opportunity today to believe in him, to allow him to become your Lord and Savior, to allow his grace to cover your sin. With Christian, sometimes we forget what Jesus did. Now listen, there are some of us who are still walking around like Mephibosheth, clump, clump, We more identify with our sin than we do our Savior. And it hurts the heart of God. If you're lost, in other words, you do not have a relationship, I invite you today to make that decision. The vast majority of you would name Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You already did that earlier in the message when I said, if you are a Christian, say amen. We had a great amen. There's many of you, but I'm asking you, are you right with your Savior? Do you need to do what 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, and that's to confess and acknowledge your sin and allow Him to forgive you? Is there something that's separating you from a close relationship with your Heavenly Father?